Well, good morning, friends. Good morning, Brackla. Thank you so much, Pastor Craig, for the privilege and the opportunity just to share with you this morning. And uh, I'm going to begin by reminding you of this time last year, because I'm sure that we all remember that as we looked ahead to 2020, this time last year, we would have had plans and ambitions for the year ahead. The more ambitious we were, well, the more plans we probably would have had in place, which means that for many people, this past nine months have been one of the most frustrating times of their lives. And of course, for many others, one of the most tragic also. We all take comfort from the thought that we have a certain amount of control over our lives and the plans we make and their success are our roadmap to comfort and peace of mind. Yet for the past nine months, almost nothing has gone to plan, and we are fast approaching the one time of year that requires the most planning, Christmas. Perhaps this year more than most, we all need to rediscover Christmas and so rediscover life as all about his plans and not ours, and how much immeasurably more he can do in our lives than we have asked or imagined or planned. After all, for Mary and Joseph, nine months that they had not planned for brought them immeasurably more than they had asked or imagined. And I take great comfort from the fact that even in the last hours of those nine months, nothing appeared to be going to plan. And I want to share with you one of my most favorite verses in the Bible that you may find really strange. It's actually found in a passage that begins in Luke 2 from verse 6. That says, While they were there, the time came for her to give birth. She gave birth to her firstborn son, and she wrapped him in cloths, and laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. In the same region there were some shepherds staying out in the fields and keeping watch over their flocks at night, and an angel of the Lord suddenly stood near them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terribly frightened. And so the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people, for today in the city of David has been born for you a Saviour who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there appeared with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, the heavenly army, and they were all singing glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among people with whom his favor rests. What a poignant and a powerful phrase that is that we read. While they were there, the time came for her to give birth. The time came. Whose time came? His time came. You know, if you're a believer listening to me this morning, there was a day in your life too when you were busy with all your plans and purposes when suddenly into your life, his time came and his arrival changed everything for now your life entered his time. But the verse that actually strangely comforts me, especially in a world where my plans so often are frustrated, is actually the next verse, verse 7, which reads, and she gave birth to her firstborn son, and she wrapped him in cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them at the inn. One day I would love to ask Mary, what went through your mind? You who were believing that you were about to give birth to the Son of God, what went through your mind when Joseph tells you that apparently God hasn't even managed to book you a room on the most important night of your life? You know, whenever some mystifying disappointment befalls me in life, when I find myself thinking, God, that could have gone so much better, where were you? I remember that verse. And I remember that when Mary walked away from that warm inn into the cold night, the Lord was with her. 
This morning, I want to declare with all my heart the joy of the gospel, that the Lord makes his way into our lives, not when we have made ourselves ready to receive him, not when through good planning or good living, we have made our lives clean enough to receive him. But his time comes in our lives, not when we're at our strongest, but when we're at our weakest. And in this way, we discover that he never expected nor wanted us to be strong enough of ourselves for him, but to discover that life as he knows life has never been of ourselves, but always has only ever been found in union with him. Let me tell you something that will lift a great burden off your life this morning. God is not asking you to produce your best life for him. The angel did not ask Mary to produce a child. Rather, he told her that she would bear a child by the power of the Holy Spirit. You see, it is religion that will exhort you to produce a life for God. But the gospel of God's grace reveals that it is not by our doing that we are in Christ Jesus, but by his doing. Listen to the words of the Apostle Paul to the Corinthians and let them refresh your soul in this year when all our best laid plans to make ourselves worthy of a visitation from God have been postponed or cancelled. Is this not exactly the right time to consider our calling, brothers and sisters, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong, and the insignificant things of the world, and the despised God has chosen, the things that are not so that he may nullify the things that are, so that no human may boast before God. But it is due to him that you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, and righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption, so that just as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. You see, what we see in the New Testament is that whenever the church was in danger of living just like the world, then the Holy Spirit, through the ministry of the apostles, would direct them back to how they first received Christ. Why? Because understanding how we received Christ is the key to understanding how we can walk in Christ. That's Colossians 2 and 6. Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. In that same way, walk in him. You see, if many of us in the church who are in Christ are not walking in Christ, not walking in the victory and the power of his resurrection life, it could be that either we've never properly understood how we came to be in Christ, how we received him, or we once did know that it was all by grace, but have fallen away from that truth because we've been led away by the spirit of the world at work in the church, the spirit of performance. I want to put it to you this morning that large sections of us in the church have for one reason or another fallen away from the joy and the power and the simplicity of the gospel, things that we're reminded about uh, when we think back to our time, perhaps even as children at Christmas. And I feel a burden to understand how this has happened. How did we manage to so mix the gospel with religion that to most people in Wales today or in Ireland, when they read the word gospel on our signs, they see the word religion. Even though for the first generation of the church, the greatest persecution of the gospel came from the religious. I want to understand how is it that in Jesus' day, he attracted the pub crowd and repelled the religious, and yet we in the church today appear to do exactly the opposite. But I also feel a burden to share with people the exciting news that we're living in a day of restoration of the gospel, the evidence of which 
is a restoration in the church of such joy and power and liberty in the Spirit that people in situations that appear to you to have remained unchanged for years, you are going to see change. Now you may say, well, where is your evidence for that? I have two witnesses. The first is the Holy Spirit, and the second is my own soul. And the second witness has been persuaded by the first. You see, I've been in a position now of ministering the gospel in a local church and speaking on a Sunday for the last maybe 24 years, with over half that time as pastor. And, you know, like yourselves, I guess, I have found highs and lows of experience. I've found days of great joy, days of being inspired, and then days of great disappointment, days of being disillusioned. If I had to name the greatest disappointment in ministry, the thing that has confused and confounded me the most, it would be that for a long time it seemed to me that it was possible for folk to sit under the message of the gospel for years and remain largely unchanged, still largely self-centered, small-minded, judgmental, and fearful. And that was just the pastor. And all of those traits could be summed up in one word, religious. You see, what Jesus said to Nicodemus, a sincere but religious man, is still true. Flesh gives birth to flesh. The spirit gives birth to spirit. If what is constantly manifesting in the lives of people constantly sitting under a message is flesh, natural thinking, what we could call worldly thinking, then the most likely reason is that the message they're sitting under is a worldly message. Now, in the modern church, when we use that word worldly, what we usually mean is secular. So we would describe various types of music perhaps as worldly or sometimes the way people dress as worldly. So it comes as a bit of a surprise to us that what the New Testament describes as worldly is actually anything religious. Any thinking or action based on the principles and traditions of man-made religion. To put that more succinctly, the basic principle of this world is self-effort. Man-made religion, any set of guidelines, purport to tell you what you need to do to get God to move on your behalf, are all simply a manifestation of the spirit, the thinking, the mindset of this world. So religion is actually a worldly pursuit. For the idea that we can change God's mind or move God by behaving better appeals to the pride of man because it puts I first. God was good to me because I first was good to him. If we go back and read Colossians 2 and 6 again and read on, we can see this contrast between the principles of the world and Christ. Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, having been firmly rooted and now being built up in him and established in your faith, just as you were instructed and overflowing with gratitude. See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. You see, anything that is based on, or birthed by, the belief that man can be like God, good, apart from the Spirit of God, is religious or worldly. The worldly view, the worldly spirit, believes that if you are first good to God, then he will be good to you. That's a basic principle and tradition of the world. Good people deserve good, bad people deserve bad. Now, you may be thinking by now, Phelan, what's all that to do with Christmas? Well, right now in Bridgend and across Wales, as in Ireland, Christians who would abhor worldly music or worldly dress are happily making out their Christmas lists in the most worldly fashion. For all of our lists, on those lists, are gifts that we want to give to people whom we deem good enough, lovable enough to deserve our generosity. You see, our list 
of those we will be generous to is by and large, once again this year, a list of our friends and loved ones. I mean, for after all, who, who puts their enemies on their Christmas list? Actually, God does. That's called the foolish gospel, the gospel the church has forgotten. You see, a worldly view of God has him giving to those who deserve his giving and withholding from those who don't deserve his giving. For the spirit of the world says nothing is for free. God's blessings must be earned. But that is not the spirit that you and I received when we received Christ. You know, the Apostle Paul, on hearing that the Corinthians were behaving like the world, he wrote this to them in 1 Corinthians 2, 12 and 13. I love these verses. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, so that we may know the things freely given to us by God, which things we also speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the Spirit, combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. Note there that a worldly gospel is a message about what you first need to do for God so that he would then bless you. Paul goes on to explain to the Corinthians in that chapter that to the natural mind, a message about a God who gives first and gives everything he has is foolishness, and the natural mind cannot accept it. For the natural man can only imagine a God like himself, a God who only gives once you first have given to him. So our worldly message says, you first, then God. If you, then God. How many times have you heard that worldly message proclaimed in the church? If you, then God. If you will love him and serve him well and give to him and be good to him and be good for him, then he will come and bless you. That is a message for a people who were waiting for God to do something. Here is the gospel. God did something and he didn't do it in response to your goodness. That's worth saying again. God did something and he didn't do it in response to your goodness. The foolish gospel says he did it at just the right time when we were powerless. Romans 5 and 6 says, you see, at just the right time when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. You see, when the time came, when his time came, like Mary, we didn't feel ready at all. We were so far from the place we'd imagined we would be when he came. So don't be afraid this year when all your plans have come to nothing and you feel as far from ready for God as you've ever felt. You're actually, perhaps for the first time in many years, back in a place where there is just the room for him that he was looking for. When God did something, he didn't do it in response to your goodness, for this is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and gave us his son, an atoning sacrifice for our sins. That's 1 John 4 and 10. You see, the gospel is not a message about our love for God, but about his love for us. And that's why in speaking of the gospel he preached, Paul could sum it up as this. We preach Christ and him crucified. Can you hear that there's nothing about your eyes performance in that gospel? And that's why to the world, Paul said this gospel is foolishness. God is well pleased with this foolish message to save people. The gospel that scandalizes the world and continues to be a stumbling block to the religious still saves men and women. You know, a worldly view of God is summed up neatly by the world's description of Father Christmas in that song, uh, Santa Claus is Coming to the Town. Listen to our worldly catechism. He's making a list and checking it twice. Gonna find out who's naughty and nice. Santa Claus is coming to town. He sees you when you're sleeping. He knows when you're awake. He knows if you've been bad or good. So be good for goodness sake. 
that's not the gospel. But in many parts of the church where the spirit of the world has got in, that's the worldly gospel, the religious gospel that is preached. And under such a worldly message are raised worldly Christians, for the flesh can only give birth to the flesh. Now as worldly Christians, we have received the Holy Spirit, but our minds, rather than be transformed to the mind of Christ, have been conformed to the spirit of the world. And so we walk, we live, just like the world around us does. We too love the good people, the godly, and we can't bring ourselves to say one good thing, never mind love the bad people, the ungodly. The world looks at us and watches us, especially on social media, I think, and comes to this conclusion. The church is behaving just like us, and so their God must be powerless, for if he can't change them, then he can't change me. You see, when you and I as Christians, when we, the church, who have been slowly been becoming more and more religious without realizing it, when we're suddenly awakened to the truth, suddenly brought back by the Spirit to the foolishness of how he saved us, then our eyes are open to see that not only was there nothing we ever did to earn the life of God, but in fact all our efforts to be good enough since have not changed God's mind in us. He does not and will never regret giving us everything, for that is what love does, for that is who he is, the God who died for us, when we were still sinners. You know, it's taken me some time to realize that God has given himself away to me without reservation, lock, stock, and barrel, and that he did that even when he knew that there would be seasons when I would take that inheritance and squander it. I believe those angels we read about knew from the day Jesus was born that he had given himself away to man, lock, stock, and barrel. They saw how God had dressed himself in humanity, and they were staggered by the implications. You know, from the day he was born, he was even dressed as a saviour. He was wrapped in swaddling clothes, which is what those shepherds around Bethlehem did with the male lambs who were being kept for the slaughter at the temple. And that's why the angels said to the shepherds, this will be a sign to you. You will find the child wrapped in swaddling clothes and laid in a manger. When the angels saw the appearance of God in human flesh in that cold, dark night, they knew for certain that it was true, that he had given himself away, lock, stock and barrel, everything he had, to ungodly people. I wondered, God, how could I even imagine how the angels felt? How could I describe the joy that they felt? What was it like for them to see God appear in human flesh? What did that say to them about God? You know, the angels spoke about the gospel as the news of mega joy to all men. Was there a part of them that couldn't quite believe that this was happening, that God would give himself away to people like that? What was it like for the angels that night? Have I ever had an experience like that where something so amazing was happening to me that it didn't really sink in until I saw something that removed all doubt? Yes. I remember when I first started going out with the most beautiful woman in the world. For a long time, I couldn't quite believe what was happening, that the most beautiful woman in the world liked me, never mind loved me. And as the months went by, I began to believe that it might just be possible that she loved me with everything she had. Could this be true, that she would overlook all my faults and give all of herself to me, for better or for worse? Was this really true, that someone would love me enough to want to unite their lives with mine as one life? I wanted it to be true, but how could I know, when would I know, if this was really true? Well, there came a day, an hour, a moment, when I was finally convinced that this was true. It was the day of our wedding, when I stood waiting and holding my breath until finally I turned around and saw her walking toward me up the aisle, dressed in a white wedding dress. 
In that moment, all doubt was gone, for in that moment her love was so clearly demonstrated to me by her appearance in white. Nicola's love for me was demonstrated for all the world to see by the way, the manner in which she had clothed herself. You see, if she turned up in jeans and a baggy jumper, I may not have been as convinced that she was about to go through with it, but the way she was clothed in her wedding dress convinced me that she was not here to negotiate, just to give everything she had. When she saw me dressed as I was, she knew the same. When the angels saw God appear that night in Bethlehem in human flesh, they knew that night what God wants each of us to discover and rediscover this Christmas, that he did not come to negotiate. He did not come to make up his mind about you or I, to give us a series of tasks to judge our suitability on. He did not come to start a religion. He came dressed. He came clothed for a union, a marriage. When the angels saw God clothed in flesh, they knew without any doubt that he came because his heart was set on you and I, lock, stock and barrel. He came because he wanted to share his life, his all, with you and I, and whosoever would receive him would believe in his name, Saviour. He came to take everything we had onto himself, including all of our sin, so that we could take everything that he had onto us, all his goodness. And you know, when a couple stand before me to get married, I do not say to the bride, what will you give to this man to convince him you're worth marrying? Rather, I say, do you take this man to be your husband? And I say the same to the groom. You see, God is not asking you this morning or any morning, what will you give to me to convince me to be your savior? There's only one question that needs an answer. Can you see Jesus? Can you see God dressed for a union with you? Can you see God clothed in human flesh means that God in heaven is not in the process of making up his mind about you. Can you see that Jesus coming was God's mind made up about you? Can you see that he so wanted you to know his mind on you, his love for you, that he came not when you had made yourself ready to receive him, not when you through good planning or good living had made your life a clean enough place to receive him, rather his time came in your life and in mine not when we were at our strongest, but when we were at our weakest. In this way, we discover and rediscover that he never expected nor wanted us to be strong enough of ourselves for him, but to discover that life as he knows life has never been of ourselves, but always only has ever been found in union with him. He never asked us to produce our best life for him. Rather, he promised that we would bear his life and that by the power of the Holy Spirit, a power ever present in the gospel. You know, nearly 2,000 years ago, the Apostle Paul declared something about the gospel's capacity to bear fruit that I want to leave you with. For I believe that you and I and the whole church are being led back to the place where we can receive this truth, back to the place where we can say his time has come. For we can say that when we remember that his time has always been a time when no room has been found for all our best laid plans. So I leave you with Paul's words from Colossians 1 verse 6, which reveal how exactly the gospel bears fruit in our lives. And I speak these words with great confidence that he who began a great work in you and I is the finisher of that work, as well as the author. Paul wrote this, the gospel is bearing fruit and growing throughout the whole world just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it and truly understood God's grace. God bless you.